Not long ago, it was guys weekend. You know how guys do, like we go out to the lake and uh, we like shoot stuff or pull stuff out of water with hooks and whatnot. And so it was guys weekend. We were hanging out. And so there was about, let's see, there was eight of us and seven of us went fishing for just a minute and we left the one behind whose, whose place it actually was. And he was cooking steaks. He was grilling steaks. He had this big green grill kind of thing from outer space and so he was grilling a steak on that or grilling steaks for us on that and we come back in from fishing and when we open the door like we're on the front of the house he's on the back of the house on this big wooden deck with this big green egg and he's grilling and all I hear over the house is help help and I'm like guys what is he is that a joke like is he is he playing and they're like oh he's just he's just trying to be funny or something he's like, no help and so like we we just kind of walk like is it a bear like what's going on you know walk slowly around the house and when I make the corner like nothing could have prepared me for what I saw his deck was on fire like it was ablaze okay and so what had happened just to unwind the tape a bit what had happened was he had this lighter fluid too close to the big green egg and he didn't know that and it started to balloon like get bigger and bigger and bigger and when he realized what was going on he grabbed it with these tongs and it liquefied and that it caught fire and then it like ran liquid fire underneath the deck where all the pine needles were and it was cooking the deck from underneath and the deck is attached to his house and so like his whole house is about to burn down and so then what this when when the comedy ensues because then he goes to the water hose which is one of those hoses in a box and he grabs the box and he pulls it and when he pulls it the little hose connected to the box disconnects okay and so now he can't get water to the fire. And so the scene that I walk up on is he has the hose turned all the way up and he's trying to arch this little stream of water on this bonfire that is about to take out his house. And so the seven of us walk up on this scene and we run in the house and we're just like looking for buckets, but we can't find buckets. But what we could find was these little red solo cups. And so we line up at the sink to fill up these little, I mean, we're like going into the toilet, you know, and everything and just going out there and like, take that, you know, trying to put out this fire. And we literally think like he's about to lose his home. Like that's seriously what's going on. And so we eventually get it under control. Like the fire dies down, like everything's going to be okay. Everybody's going to live there. There to this day, there's like this big charcoal black spot on his deck and so that night we're, we get to this place where we're able to laugh about it you know he's still a little shooken up he's got PTSD from the whole experience but we we go to bed that night and I, I sleep at his house and we wake up the next day and I get up before everybody because I'm a Christian and um, <laughs> I go into the kitchen for a cup of coffee and I open the cabinet looking for the coffee and under the cabinet is this big red fire extinguisher. And I'm so confused by what I'm seeing. And my, my buddy's name is Blake, and, and I, like, I don't even care if he's sleeping. I'm like, Blake! Blake! What, what? Bro, get in here. We gotta talk. He like stumbles in, like wiping his eyes. My man, what is that? And he's like, 
Oh. Oh, I forgot I had that. I'm like, dude, that would have been so helpful yesterday, man. Like, things like that, like that could have saved our life. Like, that would have saved your home. That would have saved your debt. Like, we, we had a fire extinguisher. He was like, oh, I don't even know if it works. I'm like, you don't know if it works. Like, why do you have something to fight fire? Like, you have the perfect thing to deal with the situation, and you don't know if it works. You don't know if it works. My hunch is you probably have some interest in Jesus. Might be why you're here. Maybe you're exploring this book. Like, do I believe it? I don't know. Do always lead to God? Where am I really at with this faith? Is there a God? How do I know? You have some semblance of faith. But I think the problem with our generation is we think that that's fire insurance. Like, that's how we avoid hell and hopefully one day get into heaven. That's not what this book teaches. You need to know that. That's not what it says in here. If you start to read this, then all of a sudden, that belief's going to come shattering down because your faith is not fire insurance. Your faith doesn't just keep you from going to hell. Your faith just doesn't get you into heaven. The scripture says that your faith should work, that, that you need to make sure it works. And so Jesus' little brother named James is going to make sure that our faith works tonight. He's going to inspect it. He's going to check it out. Turn with me to James chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. James chapter 2. It's probably quickest to turn to the end of your Bible, and to the back like Revelations, and then start turning forward, and you will eventually get to James just a few chapters in from the back of the Bible. As we move through this, I call this message, Faith Works. Because the essence of faith is that it works. If you have a faith, it has to work. Faith can't not work. Faith works. It functions. It, it does something. Uh, James wrote this book. It's actually the first book in the New Testament, if that interests you. It was written before all the other books of the New Testament. They're not in chronological order. And uh, James, as I said, was the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mom, Mary, different fathers. James's dad was Joseph. Jesus's dad was the creator of the heavens and the earth, known as uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or God. And uh, this was written about 45 A.D., and it's a commentary in case you think, well, James just went off the rocker. Maybe you went to seminary and you know that Martin Luther didn't like this book. Uh, it's actually a commentary on Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So James, Jesus' brother, is just expounding on his teacher, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, humans, men and women, so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, so that they will see your works, the product of your faith, and they will glorify God. Because what good is a faith that only gets you into heaven? That's a selfish faith. And maybe not a faith at all. Like, man, what if we've missed this whole Christianity thing by a huge margin? This thing where church is a hobby. Like, church is the stupidest hobby ever. Like, pick up wakeboarding or, or crocheting or, or skiing or something. Drawing. Church is a really, really bad hobby. Like, it's got to be more than a hobby. I don't, I don't even know if lukewarm Christians is even a thing. Like when he says, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. 
Like, I don't know if that's like I spit you out of my mouth and you land in heaven. or, or It just sounds bad. It sounds like God's not a fan or, or not a believer in lukewarm Christians. But we know we're saved by faith. If you've been in church long, you're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that. And so how do we make sense of all of this? I'm going to ask you three questions from this text. The first question, can faith with outwork save? Can a saving faith be seen? And what is the work that comes from a saving faith? James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? Let me just read this whole section. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have a faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You guys have studied Abraham. We're in this BC series. We've looked at the Old Testament. And then he goes, and he was God's friend. Do you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Before I get into those three questions, I've got to deal with an interpretive challenge in here. The problem with this text is James says almost the complete opposite of what the Apostle Paul says in all of his writings. And so if you have an atheist friend, he's going to bring this to your attention if he's educated to the scriptures and he's going to say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. It's all a sham. There is no God. You're wasting your time in church. We should lock the doors and never come back again. Are they right? That's where you violently shake your head and you go, no, JP, they're not right. And you'd be correct. They're not right. There's a logical, reasonable, rational explanation for what seems to be a contradiction. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That considered righteous in your Bible might say the word justified. But the problem is in Romans 3.28, Paul writes, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The first thing that I would tell you is that Paul is talking about the works of the law, not, not the good deeds that come out of our faith that James is talking about. And when he says the point of justification, Paul is saying, that we are justified before who? God. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, God in that moment sees us as righteous. But James is saying that we are justified before who? People, humans. That when people see our faith, that our faith is proven to be real to them so that they might believe and have our same faith. Paul says we're justified before God. James says we're justified before human. It's like this. I was at lunch uh, when the World Cup was going on. I was at lunch with a friend from South Africa and another friend from Australia. And they're talking, and, and um, the World Cup's on TV. In the background, they're showing highlights. And, and they go, hey, have you been watching football? 
And they like start talking, oh yeah, this play, so forth, so forth. And they turn to me, have you been watching football? And I'm like, football? No, it's not even season. Like, what are you talking about, football? And then they point to the TV and I go, oh, you mean soccer. See, it's a word that has a different meaning depending on who you're talking to and where you're at. The same is true for justification. See, James is talking to Judaizers. He's talking to people that believe you have to be circumcised in order to get to heaven. Paul, I'm sorry, Paul is talking to Judaizers. People that believe the works of the law get you to heaven. James is talking to antinomians. People that believe that once you believe in Christ, you can do whatever you want. And so James is saying, no, your works matter. And Paul is saying, no, you're saved by grace through faith. The mistake that people make is they see James and Paul face to face thinking that they're fighting, but they're not. James and Paul are friends. We know this. They were both at the Jerusalem Council. I'll, I'll read a scripture to you. It's Acts 21, verse 18. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. These guys were buddies. They're not face to face fighting in theology. They're back to back fighting two different groups of people with the same gospel, with the same message in the same Bible. So they're back to back in a battle. And so let's deal with this first question. Can faith without deeds save? Verse 14. Can faith without deeds save? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them, he asked. In the Greek, it's... it's begging the negative response. It's a rhetorical question that assumes a negative answer. No, it can't. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. If you see somebody who's starving to death and freezing to death, and you go to them and you say, I believe that you're warm and your tummy is full. You didn't do anything. You didn't help them. And if you say, I really believe that you're snuggly in a blanket and you're eating a steak right now, they're going to say, well, I'm not. In fact, I'm hungry and I'm cold. And the way that you would help them is not with your belief or by saying things over them. The way that you would help them is to get them a coat and a Big Mac, okay, so they can eat. Like, that's, that's what's actually going to help them. And what you need to know is that we can go through this earth and we can say all kinds of things. We can say, I'm a Christian. I'm a good kid. I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm a Christian. I can say, I'm a hippopotamus but it doesn't make me a hippopotamus, right? You can say anything, but what you believe defines whether you're a Christian or not. And there are things that Christians, people who believe things, there are things that they do. And so can faith without deeds save? No, because a non-functioning faith is fake. That's my first point. You can write down a non-functioning faith is fake. We can be up here singing, is he worthy? All while our hearts are drifting further and further. We can have an emotional moment, go both hands, move by the moment. Maybe you cry while your heart is drifting in the world and you're thinking how many likes do I have on Instagram and how many followers and do they like me and do they like the shirt that I picked out tonight 
And what do they think about me? All while our hearts are drifting from the God that we say that we love. We are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but a saving faith, a faith that saves is never alone. This has been accredited to Martin Luther, but I think it was actually Philip Mellencamp that said this, his protege for the first time. We are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. Since my wife and I have been married and have had children, we've always had people living with us. Um, different groups of folks that have come, come in through our houses. We've had an empty bedroom, we've given them a place to live, or sometimes they pay rent, just depending on what the deal is. And so one, one time we had four guys living with us. And even you know when my girls were little, they would talk about the, the boys on the other side of the wall. It was like a horror movie. Like They were talking to strangers, like, yeah, there's these guys on the other side of the wall. People were like, what? But anyways, and so... Uh, there was this guy that lived with us that moved to Dallas from New York City, and he was a New York uh, fireman. And he had these vanity plates on his car, NYFD, and he wore this Navy shirt almost every day with these big white letters, NYFD. He was so proud of his work there in New York, and we were proud of him. And he would tell the stories of what it was like to be a fireman in New York on 9-11 when these planes hit this building, what it was like. And he would, you know, go everywhere and, and share this story and people would ask him questions. It was so wrapped up in who he was. He had this big tattoo right here of this axe and this fire and this NYFD logo. And my kids would go over to their side up into his room and put on his fireman uniform. He had the hat and the, and the you know, the, with the shield right here and the big jacket and they'd put it on and he would tell them what it was like to be a fireman. In fact, one time I asked him to write a devotional online he was talking about a scripture and he would share his story of what it was like when those planes hit that building to be a fireman and to risk their life and to have his friends die. And I started getting emails, angry emails from people in New York. They were like, he's not a fireman. He was never a fireman. Some of them were New York firemen that said, no, we know the force. He was never a part of it. Others were people that knew him. They're like, oh gosh, don't believe his stories. He lies. Did he tell you he was a fireman? He was never a fireman, but he had all this stuff and he had the stories and he, he, you know, he had the garb and he knew the lingo. But they said, how dare he? Does he not know that people died? How can he call himself a fire? He was never a fireman. I sat him down and I talked to him. Like, how, how could you say this? And he said, I got so wrapped up in it, man, so wrapped up in the stories and the life. I, I think I actually started believing that I was that. Man, what if we go to this place every Sunday and we, we start to read this book and we memorize some scriptures, but when we're all by ourselves, we have no faith. When, when the struggles hit, we're not reaching for the fire extinguisher. We're given a worry. We're, we're overwhelmed. We're turning to tips and tricks and things of this world and practices of the air. There's no faith. It's just fire insurance. If we say we want to know the Bible, but we don't read it, 
If we're saying we want to help the poor, but we walk right by them, that's confusing. If we say we want to be the church, but we're not serving, it's confusing. If we say we want to live on mission, but we're not sharing the gospel with anybody. If we say we view all money as God's money, but we're holding on to our money and we're not giving, that's confusing. If we say we're a Christian, but none of these actions mark our lives. Like, why on earth would we believe we're a Christian? What do you have faith in? What are we pointing to? A moment in the sixth grade when we went to an altar call or something, an experience? Well, I cried. I want to be abundantly clear because I'm a guest speaker here. I believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone. And I am not trying to shame you into the kingdom. I will show you my cards and be very clear with my motive. I want to comfort the afflicted and I want to afflict the comfortable. That if you think you can come here and sing songs to a holy God and leave and it have no implications on your life whatsoever. You need to take a long, hard look inside. And the only reason, my only motive in saying that to you is, man, I want to be with you forever in the kingdom, man. I'm desperate to be with you forever in the kingdom, like to get in the presence of God. And be like, oh, man, remember the gathering? Oh, at the crossings, this place was sick. That, that church was huge. And we were singing, remember this, we sang that? that song where they sang that lyric and then we sang it back and it was such a great night. You were wearing that weird camo shirt and it was so good. Right? I want to have that reunion with you. And I don't want to get there and you not be there. And I think the only thing that might keep you from being there is that you think you're going to be there when you're not going to be there. Because you haven't really placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You do what you want to do when you want to do it. I also want to be clear that the application for you Pharisees is not to leave here and be a fruit inspector. To go to your friends and be like, well, I don't know if you're a Christian because I see what you did on the weekend. And no, that's, not, that's not the application. Okay. You look at you. You start with you. And so how can a saving faith be seen how can a saving faith be seen? But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Do you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. There's like satire here. There's, there's sarcasm here in this text. Do you believe that there is a God? Good for you. Even Satan believes that. Even the demons believe that. It's a complicated line in the Greek, this first one. It's like one long line with no punctuation. What I believe James is saying is you can't show your faith without pointing to deeds. It's impossible. Like to show your faith, you have to point to the works. It's like if I was to say, hey, show me your speed without running. Show me your strength without lifting. Show me your love without doing. In the words of the great theologian Bob Goff, love does. In the words of the great theologian James, faith works. 
It has to work. And so James is calling into question what we say versus what we do. My second point, belief is displayed in behavior. What you believe, like if you're like, well, how do I know if I believe? Belief is displayed in your behavior. What do you do when no one else is looking, when you're all by yourself and when you're in your car? Where does your mind go? What do you think about? Belief is displayed in behavior, not words. Everywhere I go, I try to have a, a conversation that has eternal significance. So when we, we eat out a lot, my, my wife doesn't love to cook, and I like to eat out, and so that works out. And so we go, and, and so I engage the server. And I, the way I do this is very simple. I ask three questions all the time. Hey, do you have a faith? Let me ask you two questions. Between one and 10, 10 being certain, one being not so sure, if you died today, how certain are you that you would go to heaven? I asked the dude that a couple days ago, and, and he said, I'm a nine. And I said, okay, the second question. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you in, what would you say? He goes, I would tell him because I believed in him. I believed in him. What did you believe? I believed in his existence, that he's real, that he's God. I believed in him. What if he responds, James 2.19? So does the demons. So what? So you know demons have amazing theology. They have better theology than any of us. They know this book, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. They know them. They got all the scriptures memorized. Demons have amazing theology. They've been with God eternity past. You know, they were angels. They fell to the earth. They were sent here. Demons have an amazing theology. They know the truth. They just lie about it. They know the truth. They're just trying to pull you off sides by lying to you about who God is. They know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but they want you desperately to think there are lots of ways. Anyways, just try to be good. This is why, and you know, if we know each other at all, you know I spend a lot of time with young adults. I've invested my life into this generation and I never, rarely ever talk to someone about their behavior. Like, like parents will call me and like, hey, you know, my daughter's living with her boyfriend. Will you call her? I'm like, no, I won't. I don't know her. That's weird. But, um, <laughs> but if I did, I would talk to her about Jesus and what she believes about Jesus because the reason she's living with her boyfriend is because she doesn't trust God. That's why. She's believing lies about God. That, that's the only reason. I mean, I want to talk to people about their beliefs. Let me break this down for you really clearly. I talk to non-believers about the gospel. Because I'm not going to talk to non-believers about behavior. Like, non-believers should misbehave. Like, that's what they should do. That's your job description. They should do crazy stuff, rob banks and stuff. You know, like, why? I don't even, I don't know why they don't. It's confusing to me. Like, like non-believers, they should act crazy. And so I talk to them about Jesus. Like, what do you believe about Jesus? And to believers, like people who have the Holy Spirit, I talk to them about the Scripture. It's confusing that you're doing that because it, it, you say you believe this book is true, but you're doing things that contradict what this book says to do. I'm confused. So to believers, to non-believers, I talk about Jesus, the Gospel. To believers, I talk about the Scriptures. I say, hey, we, we signed up for this, right? Like, this is what we're going for, right? Right? You know? Oh, it was rhetorical, but no, that's kind. <laughs> that's kind. Our behavior comes from our beliefs. 
So what is the behavior that James is after? What's he looking for? What is the work that comes from saving faith? What do Christians do? What is the work? Like, what does, he, what does he want? What is the work that comes from saving faith? Is it the disciplines? Is he like, hey, I want you to read your Bible more and pray more and, and do that fasting thing? Is it, is it like benevolence? Hey, I want you to give more, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, be kinder to people. Is it keeping the law? I want you not to shave the sides of your heads, uh, the no shellfish. Like, what's he after? What are the works that he wants us to do? This is the convicting part of the message, okay? All the other stuff, that's cream puff stuff. This is the convicting stuff. You foolish person. Okay, before you guys hate me, I'm just reading the Bible, okay? Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? James is writing to what's known as the diaspora, the the scattered tribes throughout uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he, he's writing to Jewish converts. When he says Abraham, he's got their attention. Like they're locked in. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now this is different than what Paul says. Abraham was justified by faith, and his faith was justified by works. That's how you can remember that. Abraham was justified before God by his faith, and his faith was justified before men, humans, people, by his works. And he was called God's friend. Who's a friend? What does a friend do? What you ask him to. Do you need to move? from your apartment on the third floor? You got that big couch that your grandmother gave you that weighs 600 pounds and that TV that barely works but you kept for some reason? You call your friend and they're like, yeah, I got you. Now don't, don't be elbowing people or looking across the room right now. That's not. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So what is the work that Abraham is after? I'm sorry, that James is after. What is the work that he's after? We're going to look at the proof in a patriarch and a prostitute. A patriarch, Father Abraham, if you've been in church long, you know that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? And so he's the guy, like in the Jewish faith, like he's the man. And so he goes the Jew of all Jews, and then he goes prostitute. Rahab owned a brothel. Like she had girls that worked for her. She turned tricks for money. And so what he just did is he just removed everyone's excuse with these two ends of the spectrum. You have the righteous Jew, Father Abraham, the king of our faith, and this lowest of low Gentile, Rahab the prostitute. And he says, they both, they both did acts, works from their faith. And he, he makes the point to those of you that have been in church for a long time and you sing the songs and you know your heart's drifted, is the prostitute on the corners closer to the kingdom than you? 
And he says in one swift moment to the one of you that walked in tonight and just feels dirty because you know, you, I said that part where you're living with your boyfriend and you just felt awkward. And he says, you can have the kingdom too. Right now, it's available to you. God says he delights to show mercy. I do, what do I do for fun? Go to the lake, to the beach, hang out with my kids, see movies. You know what God does for fun? He shows mercy. That's what he does for fun. He loves to take a wicked, dirty sinner and say, you are mine. I am so crazy about you. I love you like my perfect daughter, like my perfect son. But what about the things you... I did. I don't, as far as the east is from the west, I don't even see those things. I just see the works of my son in you. And he'll use you, man. Gathering, crossings. Okay, see, he will use you, man. What am I? Dude, I'm a chump from Cuero, Texas. Porn addict, sex addict, alcoholic, coke user, women abuser. There's no hope for me. Got a two-year degree in arts, like the most worthless degree anybody can have in the history of the world. Sorry if you have that. <laughs> my God, here's my scraps. I got nothing, man, but I will tell the world about you. You save me, you offer me the kingdom, I'm yours. Let's go, let's do work. I'll go wherever you send me. I'll tell anybody. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. In Genesis 22, Abraham, he couldn't have kids. God said his offspring were going to number as the stars. But he never had a kid, so he slept with his maidservant, Hagar, and had a child, Ishmael, took matters in his own hands. But God shows up again and says, no, you don't understand. Like you and your wife, you're going to have kids. And Abraham laughed because he said, God, I'm 100. And she's 90. And people who are 90 don't have kids. And she laughs. And then she gets pregnant. And then she has this baby. And you can imagine like how much they love this baby. They waited a century, literally a century for this baby. Like how much they love Isaac. And God says, I want you to kill him. Dude, it's crazy. I've got a son, Weston. I can't even imagine. And then the next line is, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. And they walked up the same hill that Jesus, our Savior, would be killed on. The same mountain. And Jesus carried the wood for the offering on his shoulders. It's a shadow of what's to come. And if you know the story, and I think you do if you've been here because we told it, God provides a ram in the thicket, a substitutionary atonement so that Isaac didn't have to die. And we read the story and we're like, who in their right mind would kill their son for anybody? And God says, I would for you. I'd do that for you. And then he goes, Rahab, which comes out of Judge, uh, Joshua 2, I'm sorry, Judges 2, and we see the story of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And she, these spies come in, and she risks her life. She risks her life in faith to protect God's people. 
And that's, that's the scary part for me is because what are the acts of faith, the works that James is after? It's the risky stuff. It's the risky things that we would do because we believe in God. Real faith takes risks. That's my third point. Real faith takes risks. But I wrote that for you and I looked at it and I'm like, it can't be that, right? Because it, it can't be a risk if we believe that there's a God, like it's not risky, it's actually rooted in reality. We're not taking risks because we believe that there's a God. We know that we're gonna be with him forever. Like anything that we do here on earth for him is the most safest thing that we could possibly do. Think about that. Anything that you would give up in faith, anybody that you would share with in faith, any kindness or act of love or, or thing that you would abstain from in faith is the safest thing you could possibly do if you're a follower of Christ. So I had to change it to real faith appears risky. To a watching world, real faith appears risky. And so I asked a group of people, I said, what have you done because you were convinced that God is real? And I just wrote this down. I said, so some of them said, well, I spend extended time every day talking to God all the time. That'd be crazy if he's not real. Uh, I spend extended time studying a book that is over 2,000 years old. That would be a waste of time if he's not real. I have physical and emotional boundaries in dating my boyfriend. That would be insane if there's no God because the world says do whatever you want to. I weekly confess my sins to my community group, my small group. I have passed up opportunities to make more money for opportunities to do more ministry. I gave sacrificially and joyfully to the church even when I didn't have a job. I used vacation time to go on mission trips. I share the gospel even when it is uncomfortable at work, when people judge me. I forgave my abuser. Be crazy if there's no God. I gave up my smartphone to overcome sin and my friends laughed at me, but I walk in purity. No need to walk in purity if there's no God. I worshiped God in a gloomy diagnosis of my health. I turned to worship Him. I chose to remain pure in a long, unwanted season of singleness. Be crazy if there's no God. I did not retaliate when someone hurt me badly. So as you leave here and you wake up tomorrow, maybe tonight, do something that would be crazy if there's no God. Live a life that is crazy unless there's a God. Our lives should confuse the world until they see God. Like people around you should look at you and say, man, that is crazy the way she lives. That's crazy the way he lives until they see, oh, oh, they just know God. They just know God. In summary, a non-functioning faith is fake. Belief is displayed in behavior. And real faith appears risky. Let me close with one of my favorite stories in preaching. The great Blondine, I don't know if you've heard of him, Charles Blondin. He was an entertainer in the 1800s. In the 1800s, they didn't have a lot for entertainment. And so if you were a tightrope walker in France, you could capture the hearts of the world. 
And so this guy was, was world famous in the 1800s because he could walk across a tightrope and he was an amazing entertainer. And this wealthy American reached out to him and said, hey, I wanna bring you to America to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, tightrope 1,100 feet on a rope across Niagara Falls. And so this was a huge publicity stunt. People came from all around the world. Thousands and thousands of people lined the falls to see the great Blondine walk across on a tightrope. And being the amazing entertainer that he is, he walked across and then he walked back across blindfolded. Then he walked across again and he stopped in the middle and he fried an egg. I don't know how, but he did it. And, uh, and then he walks across again. He gets a wheelbarrow, and he takes the wheelbarrow across. And then he stops. And he says, do you guys believe I can walk across this tightrope? And the crowd's on their feet, and they say, we do. You're the great blondine. And he said, do you believe I can walk across this tightrope in a wheelbarrow, with a wheelbarrow? And they go, we do. We saw you do it. You're the great blondine. You're the great blondine. And he turned to the wealthy American and he said, do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow? He said, I do. I believe you're the great blondine. You can do it. I just saw you do it. I know you can do it. And he said, great. Get in the wheelbarrow. And with that, everything changed. It went from one thing to saying it and another thing to resting in it. You can say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and that God raised him from the dead. But do you know right now you're going to be in heaven forever with God? That you can lose your life for his sake? You can stop worrying what everyone else thinks of you. You can stop fearing being single needing a better job, starting to view it as ministry. You can begin to study this book and know what it says and write it on your heart and live it out. You can be crazy. You can be a lunatic Christian, a radical Christian, because I, the more I live, the longer I live, I think it might just be an ordinary Christian, a normal Christian. You can go everywhere and tell everyone about how they can live forever. You can do whatever it takes to stop looking at pornography, you can pursue personal purity, not for salvation, but from it. Because you've believed upon Jesus, you are saved by grace through faith alone. His works alone pay your way into heaven. Nothing that you do will save you. The application tonight is not to walk through those doors and try harder to clean up your act, to stop sleeping around, to stop looking at porn, to stop wasting your money. That's not the application tonight. It's not to walk through those doors and read your Bible more and pray more. That would be a travesty if you walk through those doors and that's what you thought I was asking you to do. The application tonight is to get all by yourself and to ask yourself, why don't I? Why do I? God, would you show me what I really believe about you and to trust in it? Because you are saved by works. His Jesus' finished work on the cross. That's what saved you. That's what saves you. And when you believe that, fam, you get to work. You do work. 
let's go. Father, thank you for my friends tonight. For your word, which you say doesn't return void. For your promises and all that you have for us laid up in the scripture. Lord, as we worship you, would you stir our hearts about who you are and would your amazing grace overwhelm us? I pray that this message is a warm, snuggly blanket for your sons and daughters and for those that have yet to trust in you. I pray that it is a rod and staff of conviction that they would repent of their sins and turn to you for salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to open the Bible and teach from it and for the privilege it is to sing love songs to a holy, mighty, amazing God. It is in Jesus' name. Amen.